This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We have, um, we have talked a lot in the past about Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and the history of the Christian church. Not really going to do that today, but I want you to understand that if you take like a, a macro view of the history of the last 2,000 years, you will find that church went from a living, a thriving, spirit-filled organism to an institution who was then controlled by a few people. You know, the, the church in the first century was certainly different than the church in the third and fourth and fifth century. By that time, the believers had depitched their individual rights and powers and responsibility to some sort of institution, to a clergy, who then did everything they could to separate themselves from the people. They are the ones that, the only ones that could handle the elements during the sacraments. They added things to the sacraments that they were not supposed to be. They even had church buildings where everybody now gathered together in a neutral facility rather than in homes in the book of Acts where there was an intimacy among the people. Even in the buildings that they chose, there was a certain architectural message that was communicated where you would have this the platform would be elevated. Sometimes you would have this gate or this fence that went across the top because the clergy is separated from the laity, and, and the clergy began to actually dress differently so that you would notice who they were whenever they were just walking around the streets in Walmart. Then all of a sudden, the responsibility of making the decisions and control no longer rested with the Holy Spirit inhabiting the congregation, but instead, allegedly, the Holy Spirit only inhabiting just a few. And it all became a control mechanism. All institutions that are ordained by man, the church is not, but what the church became is ordained by man, all of a sudden became something that uh, almost worked against the gospel message being proclaimed in a powerful way. Because you couldn't do that uh, unless, of course, you had the sanctions of the power to be. You couldn't preach, you couldn't teach, you couldn't evangelize because you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you can't answer all the questions. And then, therefore, if you'll study the history of the church, to make sure that you, the congregation, kept ignorant of all these things, they would then have the church services in a, in a language that you didn't understand. You had to just trust what they said. Then, of course, you had this, you know, the Pope in... Um, in Rome, which make these decrees, and he would be speaking for God like Moses in the Old Testament, and it became a disaster. Till in about the 14th century, all of a sudden the Reformation began, and there was a break away from that man-controlled system. And the Reformation, if you will study it, was just an incredible movement of God's people trying to get back to the book of Acts, trying to go back to the essence of what Christianity was all about, and begin meeting in groups, sometimes under persecution, actually a lot of times under persecution. They would meet in barns, they would meet out in the open fields, they would meet anywhere they could because 
meeting together in the sanctioned institution buildings was not open to them anymore. And it started out really well. They rescued for us the whole understanding of salvation. They placed God's word in the hands of the common people, according to the clergy, you and I, so that we could actually read it for ourselves and the Holy Spirit would interpret it for us, not some encyclical that comes from a Uh, an elite group of people. And then the Reformation began to splinter into all the denominations. That's what the Lord, um, I think, held against them in in the church of Sardis in Revelation chapter 3. It began to splinter in a whole bunch of different denominations, and each of those denominations had to take their one little nuance that made them different from the others, and they had to like elevate that to a place it shouldn't be. Then they become their own gatekeepers, then they all of a sudden had their own institutions, and then it became a control unit again. All of us in here, and I'm speaking, maybe I'm speaking with too broad a brush, maybe your experience may be different. But everyone that I have talked to, we've all grown up in church the same way. It's an institution. It has a corporate structure. It has a building. It has a marquee out front. It has committees and to run it, and it has certain leadership, and it has things we do and things we don't do, and it's just what it is. And, and we come to observe, sometimes, very few, but sometimes we participate, like teaching a Sunday school class on a lesson that was dictated by somebody who's not in that class, and it's just always been that way. We come to church, we do a service, sometimes we get together for projects and go on mission trips and stuff of that nature. We go home and live our lives and back at church, and, and it, becomes, it becomes what we've all been used to, this separate entity from our life that we have membership in, but we've lost the vibrant, pulsating, communal kind of relationship they had in the book of Acts. And what I want to tell you I know this is starting out a little negative here. What I want to tell you is all of this is by design. All of this follows um, Saul Alinsky's rules for radicals, or if you look at any government situation where they've gone in and tried to go from maybe a a democracy to uh, some authoritative government, we're seeing this happen in our own nation right now, that there is a, a schemata, there's a plan, there's a program that's put together to get us to take from us the power that we have as believers in Christ and somehow relegate us to people who don't really think we can make a difference at all in our families, in our communities. And so we just come together and we worship in our buildings and we go home in the darkness and nothing ever changes. I want you to watch some of these. You can recognize these in our own government. You can recognize these in Nazi Germany. You can recognize these in the fall of Rome. Um, and this is just a historical picture of how, how change takes place, not necessarily for the best. One of the things, first thing they do is redefine words. We're doing that right now. 
We're redefining gender. We're redefining the word gay. We're um, all of a sudden what used to mean something for decades and generations doesn't mean that anymore. And if you're confused about that, then you're wrong. And then we go back and say, well, wait a second. That's not how it was in the past. In the past, we had this Judeo-Christian ethic. In the past, it was like this. The church looked like, no, 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 no. We're going to rewrite history. And all of a sudden, what you think the past was like is not what we're preaching to you or teaching to you in our schools. The past is like now. And we've seen this process go on in our nation for two centuries. But I have some questions. You can't ask questions. Questions are not encouraged. Questions are not allowed. You basically just have to kind of fall in line. And as a matter of fact, to make sure we fall in line, we're going to set up certain rules. It, it happens in governments. It happens with every institution. It even happens in the institution of the church. There's certain rules that have to be followed that we have put together. Not necessarily biblical rules, but they kind of seem like biblical rules, or, or we're going to proof text a, a passage to make it look that way, but but they're nevertheless man-made rules. And you must comply. If you don't comply, you're, uh, you're not involved anymore. Um, there's no deviance allowed. As a matter of fact, we have now set up gatekeepers. These are people that are in charge of certain committees or certain organizations or, or um, um, even in the church or denominational workers or stuff of that nature who basically make sure that everybody that comes in is the same and there's no dissenting attitude. Well, where does the power come from? Then our government is supposed to come from the people. How much power do you think you have over Washington? None. And even if you vote, <laughs> according to the last election, somebody's going to cheat anyway. You know, and so it's like the, the power's taken away. We have these, these representatives in Congress who don't adhere to our values at all, but there's nothing we can do about that. And sometimes it ends up that way in a church. And the decisions now are not generated from the Holy Spirit dealing through the people. The decisions are generated from some top-down hierarchy that has been placed up there by somebody that kind of makes all the decisions for us. And our job is to get involved and comply or to vote for the two candidates that somebody else has told us we can vote for. Does this make sense at all? It's the world in which we live. And we know it's out there that way, and sometimes we forget that um, every institution responds this way. Even not the entity of God's church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, but the institution that we've taken God's church and placed it under for centuries. So when the Reformation took place and people decided they don't want, wanted to live that way, there's a certain pattern that took place, a certain steps they went through, the same steps that we would go through if we wanted to see things differently. It always starts small. You know, we believe the Reformation began when Martin Luther uh, wrote his 95 theses or his 95 questions he had for the church as the way it was, and he nailed it to the door of the chapel in Wittenberg, and it was there so the students could see it, so they would debate about it in class, and, and we think it began there. It really didn't. The history of the Reformation really began 60, 70, 80 years before, where people like Martin Luther were asking these questions, and, and you know some of them were exiled, and some of them paid for that with their own life, and and there was a groundswell of this mental understanding that this isn't biblical. Things should be different. 
And it was only Martin Luther that brought that to the forefront because somebody took that 95 thesis, turned it into a pamphlet, and it was like, like we would say it went viral. And so therefore Martin Luther was thrust into this battle. I'm not sure he originally intended to fight. The Bible tells us that it just takes one person to change everything. Because one of the things that the institution, any institution, never wants us to realize is that especially as a believer, you are divinely powerful because of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You, God himself, has chosen to live in us, to make us tabernacles, sanctuaries, to make us like him. It's not like we have to go to where God is. We take him with us wherever we go. One person, one person can change everything. Proverbs 28, verse 2 shows the reverse of that. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. Well, what do we do, God? But by a man, one man. We've got the multitude of corruption, the multitude of transgressions. We've got many... Uh, uh, princes, we got many elected officials, we have corrupt judges, we have churches that have gone off to the dark side, we have all this chaos and this darkness and this depressing stuff happening out there, but by one man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. God can work through one person in the midst of however the darkness is out there if that person is willing to surrender to him. We continue. Change starts small. And how change begins is thinking differently. So what I'm asking you to do today. I'm asking you to think a little different. Is that we talked about this last week and the week before, just uh, maybe going back and seeing what the Bible actually says versus how we've interpreted over the centuries and see if maybe, just maybe, like the whole idea of a shepherd, um, that the responsibility is not just on me or some other pastor, but it's actually for every one of us to become shepherds in our own families. And change, like with the Reformation, always begins not with an invention of truth, but a rediscovery of truth. That you know, I didn't know that's what it really meant. They, they changed the words and the interpretation, and I just came to believe that's how it always was because that's what I've always been taught. That's what my dad told me. That's what his dad told me. But here I am faced with the reality, and I'm thinking, wow, maybe, uh, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe it's more profound than that. And whenever change comes, you will find it's resisted. It'll first be resisted in you. Because change is always uncomfortable. Change always makes us feel like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm going to be all alone. And how, what are other people going to think of me? And then you have this dark night of the soul. We have a choice to make. Do I follow what I believe is I'm seeing with my own eyes? Or do I follow what I've always been taught? Do I follow and, and, and go in this area that... that I don't even know what tomorrow brings, or do I stay satisfied with where I am right now, even though I see that it's, it's not working? And I have to come up with this conclusion myself. And once you do, and other people do, and this change, like with the Reformation, hits this critical mass, and all of a sudden many people are involved in that, 
the overall changes in society happens very quickly. But it comes with a price. It comes with uh, severing of relationships. It comes with sometimes you feeling like you're a person all by yourself on an island all alone. It, it comes with a price. Jesus said if they have done this to the uh, master of the house, how much more do you think they're going to do to you? Jesus came to use secular terminology, Jesus came on earth as a change agent. He reacted against the institution who had perverted this whole idea of Judaism and made it a man-controlled entity. And why would we not expect, when you look at it from a macro view, that maybe sometimes that can happen to us? When change takes place, people have to choose. And you will find the people that you hang around with, the people you go to church with, the people that you know, you will have cowards and heroes, and they'll become very apparent. Um, they, we saw this, Bonhoeffer talked about that in Nazi Germany at that time. Those that, that were with them and willing to pay the price are those who weren't, and history has proven which side was correct. You will also find out that when change takes place, everything changes. You change. Your relationship with your family changes. Your relationship with your work changes. You're the way you respond or the people in the, the world respond to you will change. It's not something that you can just compartmentalize because what you have seen, the truth you have seen, you can never unsee. Never. And you will never be satisfied again with the status quo when you have been able to taste of what God really wants us to be. Does that make sense? So, what do we do? Well, we start thinking about some of the things we have not been told. Or if we've been told, the things that we have been told, we haven't, they haven't really been emphasized. And here's just a couple of them. The church. What is the purpose of the church? What's the definition of a church? You know, and, and where does the power of the church come from? Well, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the, a biblical church or an institutional church? Are we talking about the church we see in the book of Acts, the church Jesus talked about, this spiritual thriving entity of this assembly of called out ones, which is what the word ecclesia means. And, and the, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against my ecclesia, my assembled group of called out ones that are all inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And we want to know what that looks like. We got the whole book of Acts to give us a picture of that. I mean, what is the purpose of the church? Is the purpose of the church to uh, train your kids because you're not doing it at home? Is the purpose of the church for us to come together and sing a couple songs and hear some message that we could literally hear online if we wanted to? Is, is the purpose of the church just to get together and have fellowship or maybe join together on some benevolent sort of ministry such as uh, the baby bottles or such as feeding homeless people or stuff of that nature, which is all good. I mean, is that why we're here? Is it to have these big buildings? You know, on every street corner, this marquee that this is a church, and that's a church, and this is First Baptist, and that's First Presbyterian, and this is First Church of God, and we never get along with each other because they believe in, in a different kind of dynamic than we believe, and these guys over here are kind of strange, and so therefore, I mean, is that what church is all about? When we transfer our membership from one church to another, what are we doing? We're going to an institution and saying, hey, please accept me in your, uh, in your group. Sure, here's tithing envelopes, here's your responsibility, here's what we expect from you. 
Well, I have something I want to share on Sunday. Sorry, we have rules. You can't do that. I mean, where's that come from? And then when it comes to the power of the church, is, is a church more powerful because it's larger? You know, is, is Elevation the most powerful church around because it's got multiple campuses and all that kind of stuff? And according to downloaded sermons on YouTube last year, T.D. Jakes is the most popular preacher in America right now. So uh, the Potter's House, I think that's the name of his church, isn't it? So, I mean, does that make you powerful? Or does the power not come from the bank account or not come from the size of the building or the professionalism of the people who are up here? Does the power come from something different? How in the world did these group of people in the book of Acts who did not have what we have, rejected what we embrace, yet turn the world upside down for the gospel message in a very hostile environment could lead to their beating and stoning and death? How did they do that and not have what we have? And how can we not even get close to doing that, having what we think is so much more than they do. What was the structure of the church back then? I mean, how did that work? What, had, what was the requirement for being a bishop or elder? Oh, we see all these requirements in, in Scripture. Not one of them involves seminary. Well, you mean to tell me that a person doesn't have to train themselves to be approved? Not at all. Not at all. But, but institutions today become like jobs. I want to be a pastor, so what do I do? I have to go to seminary. I got to college and seminary, get a three-year degree. Then I want to apply to a doctoral program because then some church will hire me because I'll be qualified doctrinally to take the job as a pastor, and I'll get reviewed, and I'll stay there, and I'll have a retirement package, and I may be there for two or three years or five or six years. Then I'll move on to another church and another church and another church. There's this revamp. That's what we've always done. That's the way it is, especially in Baptist circles that... Um, I was used to. Some denominations, people that don't even know anything about the church make those decisions. And you're only going to get it for two years. Because if after two years, you'll develop too much community with the people, and we just need to keep things kind of moving around. We don't want the congregation to be focused on the pastor. We want it to be focused on the entity, and so therefore we'll bring a new pastor in there every two years. It's insane. Where did all that come from? What, is that even biblical? But we've decided to accept that because we feel powerful, powerless to change it and don't even know what to do. In lieu of time, I'm going to use one example here to show you um, what is and what could be when you and I decide to be to believe that we are the people God created us to be. That we are not inadequate, we are not unchained, trained, we're not, not allowed to be able to do the most important thing in the Christian life, which is to share your faith and your experience with someone else. So we're just going to talk about evangelism. And I want you to see how we've changed terms. I want you to see how we've given... The institution has limited um, access to certain terms uh, based on a control mechanism. And biblically speaking, none of that is true. And when all of a sudden we realize that you are the church, 
we are, are the ecclesia, the called out ones. And the Holy Spirit rests not in this building when we're not here, but only in us when we are here or wherever we go, that everything changes. When it comes to evangelism, there's a couple phrases that are thrown out that um, uh, we have somehow, as a system, kind of changed the definition of, or created definitions. One is apologetics, one is discipleship, one is evangelism, which means preaching and uh, involves a preacher. And we look at these things and, and we go, is there anything else in Scripture that talks about how we're supposed to share our faith with people? And, and if there is, where in the world does the Holy Spirit fit in all of this? Because apologetics is like this school, this class of, of, uh, of Christianity where it's usually talked about on an intellectual or academic level, and it's been digressed to the point where it basically means that we have to come up with answers that the people out there want to know to defend the claims of Christianity. Somebody says, hey, I don't really, uh, I don't really believe in the seven-day creation. Can you explain that to me? I believe in evolution. So uh, we, we go to these classes on apologetics, and we take degrees in apologetics. You can get a master's degree and a doctoral degree in apologetics to memorize all these defenses of the gospel, because unless you have that, you're ill-prepared to tell anybody about Jesus, because they're going to ask you a question you can't answer, and if you don't answer the question, they're going to hell, and it's your fault. And so we've developed this mindset that started out helpful, and somehow it got twisted to it became something that keeps us from sharing our faith rather than helping us share our faith. The word apologetics, the whole idea of apologetics, comes from one passage found in primarily in 1 Peter 3.15. Um, I want you to read it. It says, but sanctify, notice the but first. But is a contrast, so it means this is something... Uh, contrary to or in connection with something that went before. But, here's what I want you to do in contrast, sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. A defense of what? Well, apologetics says the defense of the gospel. The context here says a defense for the reason you're suffering for righteousness. What? None of us in America hardly ever suffer for righteousness uh, yet. But uh, we've, we say it's now a defense of the gospel. To everyone who asks you the reason for the hope in the midst of suffering for doing good that is in you in meekness and fear. Got that. That's, that's, that's a great thing we ought to do. But the context is not about helping people intellectually deal with their objections so they can intellectually embrace Christ. Instead, it talks about you're suffering for righteousness. You've done nothing bad, and people are spitting in your face, and you have a smile on your face when that's happening, and it doesn't seem to bother you. Can you explain to me the hope that you have to respond this way under persecution? Look at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. How am I blessed for suffering for righteousness' sake? And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But, oh, so not to, I'm supposed to, I'm blessed, 
and I'm not supposed to be afraid of their threats. What I'm supposed to do is sanctify the Lord God in my heart and always be ready to give a defense to prove to everyone who asks in the midst of my suffering and persecution how I have that hope and do so in meekness and fear. Having a good conscience when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may not be ashamed, for it is far better that it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. The context here for apologetics is it's really like your testimony. You know, I'm, I'm being maligned for not doing anything wrong. I got people saying terrible things on Facebook about me. I, you know, I lost my job, and, and, and they just, they, Amazon just ran a, a four-part series on me, and uh, I'm not saying anything about it. I'm just trusting God to work it all. How in the world do you live that way? How is that even possible? And the, and the answer is to give defense, to answer their question, the answer is, it's because of Christ, what he's done to me, what he means to me. It turns it in to a testimony. Here's what the word means. To sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense. This is where we get the Greek word, is where we get the word apologetics from. Apologetics is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. But it's not what the word they take to create that discipline means something different. Here's what it means. To give an answer or speech in defense of yourself, or the speech except, in and of itself, the speech act of attempting to prove some act or belief is reasonable, necessary, or right, especially in a court of law. I'm being confronted because of my faith in Christ. I'm being accused of doing something uh, that may or may not be against the civil laws because I'm a Christian, you know, um, whether it's right for us to obey you or obey God, judge for yourself, but for me, we're just going to obey God, that Peter said. That's what it means. To everyone who asks you the reason for your hope, this general feeling and expectation that your good desires will be fulfilled, is what it means in the Greek, that is in you with meekness and fear. So, the question, just as an example, where in the world did we as a culture go from seeing what that word means about defense and creating this entire evangelistic, theological sort of discipline where we hire an apologist to come in to teach us nuances about the Scripture that we don't know. So we write them down so we'll be able to answer everybody that has a question about the gospel. What about this? And what about that? And what about women pastors? And, and what about all these different translations? And none of that is bad. Don't get me wrong. None of that is bad. It's good for you to know those things. But if you don't know those things and use that as an excuse for not sharing your faith with somebody, then it becomes a tool of Satan to keep you silent when the world needs your story. Does that make sense? And what we've done is just change the terminology. And we inadvertently, it's not by anybody's fault, I'm not slamming apologetics. I took courses in apologetics. They're very helpful. But you know, if I know everything intellectually to answer every one of your intellectual questions, and you throw 75 objections to me, and I bat them all away, and now there's nothing left but for you to intellectually make a decision for Jesus, because I've embraced every one of your, or answered every one of your intellectual questions, and you do intellectually embrace Christ now because I didn't answer all my questions, has salvation truly taken place? No. 
However, if by answering those intellectual questions, you come to a regenerative, saving uh, relationship with Christ, that's fantastic. But if we, we come to believe that if I don't know all the answers, then I can't, I can't share my faith. The, let me just click through these really quick. Um, by the way, whose duty is it to make a defense of the hope we have in him? Is it the apologist? Is it Ray Comfort's? Is it uh, Norm Geisler? Is it John MacArthur's? Is it somebody who's far more knowledgeable about apologetics than we are? It's the guys that teach the apologetic courses. Like you remember, you, what, what was that? Gardner Webb? Not Gardner Webb, but yes, exactly. Is it only those guys? No, it's all of us have a responsibility to share this hope we have, even in bad situations. But what if you don't have that hope? Then going to an apologetics class and learning all the facts ain't going to help you at all. Because unless it's real to you, it just becomes academic. So, went to John MacArthur's uh, Grace um, Theological Seminary, and uh, I went to his course on apologetics. And this is from John MacArthur. This is from Grace Theological Seminary. Here is John MacArthur's answer to the question, what is apologetics? He says, in the most basic sense, apologetics... Uh, refers to a systematic argumentative discourse. All right, well, that's not biblical, but that's what they have created, and that's not a bad thing, not, not a bad thing. Uh, breaking uh, that definition down further, it means that an alternative view of a topic is offered in an organized fashion. Twice now, we've used the word systematic and organized. It does not have to be argumentative in the sense of being quarrelsome. Of course, most of us have probably experienced that once any conversation turns to Christianity. After all, Christian apologetics is what we're talking about here, the intellectual defense of the truth of the Christian religion. Many tend to get a bit passionate when defending something they hold near and dear to their heart. But the word apologetics except, itself stems from the Greek word apologia, which I just showed you in, in, uh, here, which simply means an answer given in reply. Wow. So it's an answer given in reply. Think of this less as a debate and more like telling your friends about this buried treasure you found. You're convinced the treasure holds an infinite, no, a buried chest you found. You're convinced the chest holds an infinitely invaluable treasure and your friend has some questions. Oh, so apologetics answers their questions after I have shared my story about Christ, to tell them about this great treasure I have found. Discipleship. Well, discipleship is part of our job. We find that in Matthew 28, 18, during the, uh, the Great Commission. And so here's discipleship. All authority, that's not Dudamas power, but authority power, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Given to who? Given to Christ. Therefore, because of that, Go and make disciples, not converts. Converts is something God does. Our job is to take the converts that he's brought to himself and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded to you, and you know what? I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. We've all memorized that. This is the idea of discipleship. Um, but I have a couple questions. How do we view discipleship today? Oh, we... Um, we bring them to church. 
I mean, we have discipleship programs in church. We take them to a seminar. We give them a book. We tell them to listen to a podcast. If you want to be discipled, it's not my job. I'm not qualified to disciple anybody. I haven't been trained or sanctioned by the church or ordained by some ecclesial body to do discipleship. All I can do is come and sit and tithe. You know, somebody else has to do that. We have Sunday school teachers that can disciple people. We've got women's group and men's group to get together. I'll come, but somebody else has to do that because discipleship now is all funneled to the institution and people who are sanctioned by the institution. So much so that even, if you think about it, even homeschool parents will spend infinite amount of time teaching math and science and history and English because that helps you go out and get a good job, but very little when it comes to spiritual understanding of uh, what the Word of God says. So according to that passage, who does the baptizing? Well, not you. You can't do the baptizing. I mean, you're not, you don't have the authority to baptize anyone. You, you, you don't have to, we haven't sanctioned you to baptize anybody. If you baptize somebody in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's not real. God won't accept it. They're not baptized. Who says? Christ or the institution that likes to control? Who teaches them to observe all the things? You? No, no. Matter of fact, if, if you start a discipleship group in your home and your pastor finds out about it, he's going to be really suspect of you because what are you trying to do? Start a new church? Trying to draw people away from him? And what are you teaching anyway? Um, is it lined up with what I teach, what I believe? And, and it's a control thing. It's, it's an institutional thing. And who did Jesus say he would empower? And who did Jesus say that he would be with to the end of the age? The institution, or you, and me, as individuals, never, there was no institution when Jesus spared these words. Man invented that later. Ah, what about preaching and preachers? Boy, here's a killer. Here's the verse. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creation. From Mark 16, 15. Okay, preach. Well, what is, a preach, what, what is a preacher? Well, a preacher is one who preaches. Well, where do people preach? We only preach in church. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want to be kind of, if you take it outside of church and someone kind of preaches to you, it becomes negative. Man, don't preach to me. And so, um, you know, only, it is only done in church. And it's a special type of, of communicating. In other words, it's not just opening up a book and kind of sharing. It's walking up and down and whoop-de-doo and, you know, highs and lows and, you know, the theatrics sometimes that goes with preaching. And, 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 and only the preacher preaches, and we're not preachers, and we can't preach, and, and so therefore we have to sit. And if you do get called to preach, what does that mean? Well, God's put a call on my life to preach. Okay, well, I think probably put a call on everybody's life when you understand what the word preach means to, to preach. But, but what do you do with that call? Well, I have to be approved by the church. I have to go through school. I have to be sanctioned. A bunch of guys have to lay hands on me and pray for me because we, the institution, gives you the authority to preach. It's not exactly what the word means. First, it says go. Go. 
Uh, literally, the word means, you can look them up yourself, to move away from one place into another direction and implies motion. Never says to stay. It says to go. Go into all the world. And this word all, you know, we've talked a lot about the word pos, meaning all. This is hapos. And hapos is, means the same thing as pos, only with more intensity. So we're talking about going into all the cosmos, all the physical world, the earth, and to preach. Here's what the word preach means. It means to proclaim, to announce publicly, to make known. The New Testament borrowed this word from Greek culture, and it was the idea that somebody would go into a town, like a town crier, they would stand in the, the foyer, and they would say that, hey, the king is coming, or here's a message the king has, or something of that nature. It means to proclaim. By the way, do only preachers proclaim, or is that our job too? To proclaim, to announce publicly. We think that means on a street corner or behind a microphone. No, it just means not privately. To announce publicly or to make known. Every one of us, according to this definition, the Greek definition, have a responsibility to make known, to proclaim publicly, to tell other people about Christ, yet we've redefined the terms, placed it as an ecclesial position, and said, you can't do it. There's only one preacher in this church, and that's me, and I'm the only one ordained or authorized or educated enough to actually proclaim. And so we listen, and we go outside, and the church in general does nothing. Why is that? I mean, is that, is that what's supposed to happen here? They were to preach the gospel, the good news, to everything God has ever created. Everything. Well, are you talking about preaching in the institution? No, not really. I'm talking about preaching in the world. You're to go to all the world. Don't say go to this church and that church. I'm preaching at this church. I'll preach at your church on Sunday. You preach at mine this coming Sunday. That's what we've digressed it to. But the command of Jesus is for us to go and tell everyone about him publicly. And the institution says, you can't. So I have some questions. I mean, is preaching this command limited to just those people with seminary degrees? Can you preach without a seminary degree? You can't get a job as a pastor. You used to not be able to without a seminary degree. Do I have to be ordained to preach? Well, in a church, yes, Jesus didn't talk about going to churches and preach. He was talking about, at that time, going into all the world and make him known publicly. Do you have to be ordained by an institution that only wants you preaching in the institution? Or do you, have you already had your ordination by Christ, who gave us a command? So who gives you the authority to preach his word? Probably the same word, person who gave you the command to preach his word. And maybe, maybe some of the reason why we're hesitant to tell anybody about Jesus is because we, uh, we don't feel qualified. Qualified. How can we not feel qualified if God has made this transformation in us and our lost friend is over here who he has not made that transformation in us and we know he's real and we know he needs him, how can we not be qualified? And how in the world are we going into all the world to preach the gospel to everything God has created and the only way we do that is invite people to come to an institution where they hear somebody 
ordained to teach that message. I mean, how does that fulfill this command? And what has happened over the years is power and duty and responsibility has been taken away from us and placed in the hands of just a few people, and ministry only takes place in this building where we can control it. And if you have a lost friend, you bring them here, and we'll tell them about Jesus. You can't. See what happens? So what are we supposed to do? It's really simple. You're to be what Christ commands us to be from the very beginning. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1, that the disciples were struggling. They still didn't understand this whole kingdom of God thing and what Jesus was going to do. They still in their mind thought that he was going to set up an earthly kingdom at that advent and not the second coming of Christ. So they asked him, Lord, uh, are you going to establish kingdom Israel now? Are you going to make us kings and priests now? Are you, you going to dump Rome now? Are you going to, is your whole kingdom on earth now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or season which the Father has put in his own authority. That's not your job. But, but, this is your job, the contrast, see, in the context. But you, you, not the institution, not the hired holy man, not somebody that decides to do this vocationally, but you, personal, each one of us, without exception, shall receive something. There's a promise from Christ. You, every one of you, whether you're a pastor or an evangelist or you just got saved, every one of you who come to faith in Jesus Christ will receive power. This is not authority power. It's not exosia. It's dudamas power. It's explosive, miracle-working, achieving power. You will receive power, not in and of yourself, not because you belong to an institution, not because of anything like that, but you'll receive power when, here's the condition and the time, the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit inhabits you. When you no longer are just Steve controlled by Steve, but the old man dies, and the new man is born again, and now God has taken everything of the Godhead, the person of the Holy Spirit, and decided to let him live in you. No more so than he lives in the guy behind the pulpit, or the paid evangelist, or Ray Comfort, or Billy Graham, or John MacArthur, or anybody else. You you are now divinely powerful and commissioned by Christ with miracle-working power. So what do I do with that? Lord, what do you want me to do? I, I don't know the Bible much. I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I just got saved. I really don't know anything about propitiation. Can't even spell it. I, I, I don't know what to do. I mean... What, 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 what do I preach? What message am I supposed to bring? Like Nineveh and Jonah, or maybe you know, some cool story about Genesis chapter 5 and how all the names led to Christ. I mean, what do I preach? You don't preach anything. You become a witness. You become someone who testifies about what God has done in you. And you shall be, that's a promise, you shall become, God will make you become a witness. That's what the word means. Martyrs is where we get the word martyr from. One who has information or knowledge about something and can give that information. Do you have information or knowledge about Christ? Even if you know nothing more than 
once I was blind and now I see? Is it possible for you to give that information to someone who wants to know the hope you have in him? Does that power belong to you? Or you can bring to light or confirm something. Yes, the story of Jesus is true. Let me tell you what happened to me. And you shall become a witness, not to Christ, I mean, not to the church, not to your denomination, not to your way of thinking, but you are a witness to give testimony to one about one person, and that person is Christ, only Christ. And then he begins to lay out for them where they were at that time, how he wants that to expand. You're in Jerusalem, you preach right there. You, you share Christ right there. You're a witness to me right there. And then we get moving on into concentric circles, to Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. Look at the map and see how that happens. What God has called us to be are witnesses. And the institution, and I'm not saying this is by design, although it may be, um, the institution wants to take that away from you. No, you, you, you don't have a witness. You don't have a testimony. Matter of fact, whatever testimony you do have isn't good enough. Because I got this guy over here who was on crack for 45 years. I mean, he, you know, he's been involved in every possible sin you have, and he comes up and he shares his story. Or here's this rock star who decided he almost died, and now he, you know, of a drug overdose. He gave his life to Jesus, so we're bringing him up to tell his story. And your story, when you were six years old, like my wife, and you had, was it six or eight? Six years old, like my wife, and you wanted to know about Jesus, and her dad sat down in her room and told her about Christ, and she gave her life to Jesus. That's no story. That's boring. You don't have a testimony. Got to be these guys with the big flashy stories. And although the institution doesn't say that, we inadvertently make us feel that way because of who we showcase. True? And all it does is make us think, I can do nothing. I'm, I'm worth nothing. I'm just going to come and sit as my family just drifts off in all these directions because just, I, I can't say anything. I mean, what is a witness? Just read the passage. Someone who has information, who's experienced something, and can tell it with somebody else. Whose duty is it to become a witness? Not the institution. It's us. And Jesus promises power to each one of us when we follow his commands. I mean, this this is the way that this is the way that God originally intended his church to grow, not the way we do it now, where people join and then they tire of this church, so they go to that church, and then this church over here, one institution after another, that it comes from this kinetic, vibrant desire we have to tell other people about this joy that we have found. But most of us say, I don't know enough. I don't think I can do that, so I'm not. I'm about out of time, so let me uh, just run through these quickly. Um, you have a story. You realize that? If you know Christ, you have a story. Your story may not be the same as mine. It's not. Um, your story is not better than mine. Your story is not worse than mine. Your story is your story, and my story is my story. They're divinely empowered stories. God decided to save Karen when he did and me when he did. From a fleshly standpoint, mine's more exciting. You know, hers is not. Mine will keep your attention more than hers will. But the fact is, this is the way God chose. God did not give her my story. He did not give me her story. And so I'm uniquely gifted and she's uniquely gifted and responsible for what Christ has done in our life. 
to share it with somebody else. True? So we've got this man at the tombs. Talked about this on Tuesday night. Um, Jesus goes up there. There's this crazy wild man comes down. He's cutting himself with stones. And, you know, uh, Jesus casts the demons out, a legion of demons out of him. And they go into the swine. You remember the story. And all of a sudden, the swine drowns itself. And all these people come to see what happened. And they ask Jesus to leave. So Jesus gets back in the boat with his disciples to head back to Galilee. And the man comes up to him who's just been saved a matter of hours and comes up and says, uh, I want to go with you, Jesus. I, I want to spend the rest of my life with you because my life means nothing until you came in and changed it. And Jesus said, no, no. I want you to go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he compassion on you. Uh, well, I, I don't have, of course, I've never taken apologetics. I don't have a Bible. I've never been to church. I don't know the proper way of doing that. I don't know the proper terminology. I feel so inadequate. No, you're the only person that can tell this story. And I want you to go to the people who knew what you were like and see what you're like now and tell your story. And he departed and began to proclaim. Ooh, sounds like preaching, doesn't it? In Decapolis, all that Jesus has done for him and all marveled. Wow. So wasn't about going to seminary for three years or going through the, you know, 17 years of Sunday school class. You have a story, you go. This man did not have a theological education. He didn't have a church behind him. He didn't have the, the institution ordaining him to go out and share Jesus with people. He didn't have anything except a testimony that no one could take away from him. And he used it by the power invested in him by the Holy Spirit, and everyone marveled. Because he had a life before that they knew, and a life now. And they wanted to know, what's the difference? And he shared them. This woman at the well, you remember, Jesus in Samaria, has a conversation with her, and all of a sudden she realizes, you know, she's convicted, and realizes when Jesus says, you know, the man that you're married to right now is not even your husband. And, and she, she understands who Christ is. He's the, the son of God. Jesus even says, I whom you seek am he. And she runs off into the city, this woman of ill repute, and said, come, see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the entire city went out to see this Jesus. And once they were there, Jesus began speaking to him themselves. It says that many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him because of the word the woman testified. He told me all that I ever did. But that's not theologically sound. I mean, you didn't lead him in the Lord's Prayer. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't somehow um, you'd cross all the uh, T's and dot all the I's of your denominational soul-winning pamphlet here. All you did was bring them to Jesus, and here's what happened. Doesn't many more believe because of his word, because of Christ's word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, you brought us to him. But we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know the story of the man born blind. Jesus heals this man. The Jews come up and they get really upset about the fact he healed on the Sabbath. They keep telling him the reason why you're healed, uh, there's no way that this was the Son of God doing this or a good man. He's a bad man because he broke our law and healed you on the Sabbath. And they actually brought his parents in there and said, he's faking being blind. No, that's really our son. Well, how did he get his sight? I don't know. Ask him. And so the man simply says this. I love it. 
to a hostile crowd. They said, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, look, whether Jesus is a sinner or not, I don't know. But I'll tell you what I do know, that I was once like this, and now I'm changed. I was once blind, and now I see. That's, that's my story, the power of my story. You can disagree with my theology. You can walk away from my preaching. You can decide not to join my church, but you cannot argue with my story. It's my testimony. You can't say, that didn't happen. I was blind. They're my parents. I'm blind. Now I see Jesus did it. And that heat ball's back put in their lap. In the Apostle Paul, you'll find in Acts chapter 9, you hear his testimony, where are you experience. You read about him experiences his testimony. Where he's on the way to Damascus, his bright light falls off his donkey, hears a word, goes into there, he's blind for several days. Ananias comes, lays hands on him. Immediately, Paul starts preaching afterwards. And every time Paul got involved in a hostile environment where he knew that they would reject his theology, first before the hostile Jewish crowd that wanted to kill him in Acts chapter 22, and then before King Agrippa. Every time he did, he dropped back to tell them the story nobody can deny. Here's my story. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And the reason why he was able to share that is because they knew what he was like before. This is before King Agrippa. Um, my manner of life in my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at the Jerusalem, all the Jews know. As a matter of fact, they knew me from the first, and now I'm different. And they knew what I was like, and now I'm different. And the reason why I'm different is because of what Christ has done. I have a story. I'm going to close by just giving you um, six things that I hope that you will take to heart when it comes about your story. Every one of us in here, if we know Christ, has a story. And there's a world out there that needs to hear your story. They don't need to come to church to hear my story or to hear me talk about something they can't even relate to. They need to hear your story. And maybe your story will drive them to the Word of God. Well, they'll open up the book of John and they'll begin reading like I did. And all of a sudden, they'll have this encounter with him in John chapter 3. And it wasn't, somebody didn't lead me to Christ. They led me to his Word and Christ revealed himself to me through his word, kind of like the, the woman at the well. But you have a story that the Holy Spirit has placed in you, and he's empowered you to be divinely powerful against the enemy that wants to stifle your story or the institution, which either verbally or sometimes unwillingly communicates to you that your story don't matter that what we want you to do is bring your friends here to hear our story and everything will be okay, but you can't share your story out there because you don't know enough, because they're going to ask a question, because whatever reason. Here's some things about your story. And it's yours, not mine. It's nobody else's on the planet. God interacted with you just the way he interacted with you, and he didn't interact with anybody else on the planet the same way he does you. Um, my testimony is my testimony. My wife's testimony is her testimony. God uses her testimony the way he wants to. He uses my testimony the way he wants uh, to do. The fact is, it's my story and her story, and you have a story, and no one can take that away from you. 
The only thing Satan can do is keep you from sharing it. Have you embarrassed of your story? I don't want to tell you how I came to Christ because it's really not that exciting. Really? You were going to hell, condemned by your sins, and now all of a sudden your sins have been paid for through grace and mercy of, of, of no merit on your own? But that's not a story to tell? Well, I don't know. The guys that talk in church, they always had these great stories about how great their sin was. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of be quiet and let somebody else do it. Number two, you have to understand this is a story God gave you. And you are divinely powerful with that single weapon of your story. If you don't know anything else about Christ other than the fact he saved you and here's how it happened. That's all you need to share your story. It's all you need to share your story. If you want to know more, take a class on apologetics. But don't wait to share your story until you have a degree in apologetics. Share your story now. That's who you are. Number three, as I just alluded to, God could have brought you to him any way he wanted to. He could have had uh, some fish spit you up on the shore of San Francisco and go in there and preach to people. He could have, uh, you know, he could have had you saved when you were six years old, could have had you saved when you're 66 years old. Doesn't matter. God ordained you to come to Christ when he did. And so you cannot ever be ashamed of the story God has given you. And the flesh, is it exciting about is somebody else? No. I'm sure there's guys out there that have these incredible stories, and we all like to hear them. Wow. But the fact is, in your frame of reference, in your friends, in your neighbors, in your family, the guy with the huge story ain't there. You're there, and you have a story to tell them about what Christ has done for you. But in order for your story, listen very careful, to have any impact at all, you have to have evidence of a changed life. If you're just the same guy you were before your story, then what's the point of your story? I mean... If you uh, use a subject I struggle with, if you go online and you look at programs and how to get in shape, you know, how to work out, and, you know, there's even these new ones that come out now where they talk about if you're over 60, you know, got some huge buff guy with a big beard, you know, working out at 60, I can maybe do that. Got one for over 70, here's a buff guy in a wheelchair, you know, or something of that nature. If you look at every one of those, pictures, the stuff for you to be involved in, the person that they're selling it to you always has achieved something that you want. You know, this guy will tell you how to make a lot of money, and, you know, he's barely paid his rent. I don't want to hear what he has to say. This guy over here has, you know, worked himself up to he's an Olympic athlete and looks like a 65-year-old Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. I mean, he's done it. If he's done it, he can show me how. The fact is, if you don't have evidence of a changed life in you, which is the whole point of the higher Christian life that we spent a year and a half talking about back during the pandemic, then your story has no power at all. Because nobody wants to hear how you became like a lost person. They want to hear how they can have hope for their sin because of what God has done through you. Sanctification is incredibly important when it comes to sharing your story. Number five, God did not get the responsibility of me to share your story or your wife or your husband to uh, share your story with your kids, or your family, your friends. He didn't give the responsibility to the church to share your stories, to the institution. He gave you that responsibility because you're the only one that has that story. And number six, never forget the teaching. 
Remember, Justice preached on this at my house um, last month. Never forget the teaching of the fact that we are the light of the world. Never forget that, Justice. It's an amazing truth. Jesus says he's the light of the world. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says we are the light of the world because he lives in us. And the worst thing to ever do with the light of the world is to put it on a table. Do you remember the story? And put something on top of it so that the light of the world stays hidden to all those people in the world who are dying unless they hear your story about what the light has done for you. Your story. The more I look at this, the more I just sit back and look at church in general, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying it was intentional. It's just a byproduct of raising certain people up and letting everybody think they're inadequate. But uh, I want you this week to go out and share your story with somebody. It's really simple. You know, hey, let me tell you, uh, let me tell you what happened to me. And you share that story. Everybody wants to hear about your story. They don't want to hear you preaching to them, but they want to hear your story about how you came to Christ. But if your attitude and your life is just like theirs, ain't nobody want to hear your story. Because you have to have that light that draws them out of their darkness towards Christ. Amen? Let me pray.